Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Loftus' idea, it's a network, it wasn't as rigidly hierarchical, there were still units of properties, again, but not as hierarchical, so things were up and down rather than just rigid like they are on TLC, and the semantic distance, uh, how far away something is, the more distant it is, the less related it is, okay, which makes a great deal of sense, um, and as I said, there's always got to be a but, um, Distant related concepts should give longer reaction times, right? That's, by definition, they ought to. And a canary is a shark, takes like no time to say no. And it should take a long time to reject it, shouldn't it? Because you have to go all that distance. Okay. So, more recently than that, Anderson in 1983, Anderson's made, this is Anderson's career, is a propositional network. Um, called ACT and ACT STAR. ACT stands for Active Control of Thought. Okay? Um, now, this model, um, Kurt's mother sent him a package last week. Okay? So there's, a, there's an example sentence. It's always using, you know, you're always using sentence identification in these modeling paradigms. Um, this has three propositions in it. Right? It's got Kurt's mother, she sent him a package, she did it last week. There's three parts to this. A proposition is just a, a simple statement about anything. The neat thing about this, when you, if you identify, is that a sentence? Okay? So if you're, you're tasking you being the model, by the way, is to identify, is that a sentence? The, is it a grammatical sentence? So does it make sense? Okay? If you're to identify that as a grammatical sentence, this takes longer than if something has two propositions in it, even if it has more words. So the model's breaking it down into propositions. And in fact, you do that. That's the beautiful thing here. This is what people do. Again, these, these effects are very small in humans. And they're very small in lots. But they're reliable. The information isn't in the number of words, it's in the number of, I guess Anderson would probably say thoughts, well, propositions. That makes a great deal of sense, doesn't it? Right? And if you know a little bit about uh, linguistics and the idea of deep structure of language, the idea that, you know, the surface structure, what the words are, isn't nearly as important as what they're conveying. So, you know, you could do an interesting experiment here where you had a, a model that spoke French and a model that spoke English. Uh, same thing as French typically takes more words. I, I don't know why. I think it's probably because there's fewer words, uh, fewer words in French. That's probably why. Um, so it just takes longer to say things. Read the package. Read the, read the instructions on something that are written in English or in French. English instructions are this long, and the French instructions are that long. And they're both saying the same thing. Right? But if there's, say, two propositions in it, doesn't matter if it's French or English, it's going to say the same, it's going to take the same amount of time. Nice. 
So I'm not going to say anything else about that because it's, it gets us into neural network models, which is really where we want to get. Um, star is constantly being updated. Uh, star is important enough that I believe it even has a Wikipedia page. I mean, it's that big a thing that you can look it up and say what's star and there it is. So it's quite cool. It's also exceedingly complicated, and I'm not going to go into it any more than that, because I'll get bogged down myself. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not like, you're too stupid to understand it. Uh, I really have some trouble with it. And that's just not because I think it's bad. It's because it's hard. Go to graduate school, take a course in semantic memory, and learn all about it. And come back and tell us all. Now, neural network models, in general, the thing that I like about them is that they're trying to mimic the way that the brain works. The other models aren't. That isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all. I mean, the Atkinson-Schiffer model has no mention of any, anything that seems at all like neurons, or about anything that seems at all like brains. Right? Yeah, it does okay. Sort of model of memory. Neural network models have units or nodes that are just like neurons. They're either on or they're off. You know that about neurons. They either fire or they don't fire. Right? Neurons can't be kind of firing. They can be less likely to fire or more likely to fire. That's fine, but they're either on or they're off. And that's what neural networks do, and that's the beauty of them. So units have a threshold of firing. And once activated, uh, you get pa past that threshold of firing. Uh, past the threshold. What's the, okay, okay, again, I always say this. You've got to worry about the model first and then the physiology, right? So the model works, the models work, work like this. A node has a likelihood of firing. We'll say it's a yes one, okay? Well, it's going to say, yes, this is a sentence. Or yes, that is true. Or no, that is false. It has a likelihood of firing a threshold. And once enough yes and votes basically come in, the same way that works with neurons, if you guys know about uh, temporal and spatial summation of neurons, and I know some of you guys do because you took great behavior with me. Once there's enough yeses, yes votes in a certain amount of time, it fires. And that's how neurons work. Okay, so once the units, they, they get activated, more and more likely, more and more likely, more and more likely, then they hit the threshold and they fire. Kind of like how we get enough uh, neurotransmitter released, we get enough sodium ion channels open, then the resting potential collapses, you get an action, <coughs> just like it works in the neuron. This is what's nice about this. Because it has to be up here somewhere, and you know, neurons are doing it somehow. So I kind of like that. Excitatorily or inhibitorily or words. But the units themselves are connected either in an excitatory or inhibitory fashion. Excitatorily. Is that, is that a word? No. No, it so. <laughs> looks like it should be, though. It could be. Yeah. We understand what you mean. Yeah, I know, but it's still not a word, and I feel kind of stupid that way. <laughs> excitatorily. In an excitatory fashion is the way you would make an ad excitatory into an adverb, though. So, you know. Yeah? Yeah. And L Y is adverbs. Therefore, that's a word. <laughs> I don't think so. 
So just like neurons, they're connected either in the, there's an excitatory connection or an inhibitory connection. Excitatory more likely to make a fire, inhibitory make it less likely to fire. And there are activation rules. So this node fires when? See what I'm saying? So that the rule is just like, this node fires when it sees the word hat. It's a sensory node. And then there's, does it output? So it has a rule about outputting something. And if that rule is satisfied, it sends output to another node. Just like neurons. Again, it's, this is... These are the same kind of rules about how nervous systems work. That's the beauty of this, and that's what I like about it. It makes these are really cool computer <coughs> programs. Um, they're somewhat. They're not the kind of thing you just sit down and write by. You know, you, 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 computer scientists write these things. These aren't just done by just some guy, right? These aren't just done by like uh, twelve-year-olds with scripts they get from fortune. So, and there are rules about how it learns. So the network is set up such that, and you can put the rules in. So, for example, you will learn the most on the first trial. Um, things will decay over time. So you put some of those rules in. In fact, those are the rules of how we learn, right? So what you're doing is here, you're actually basically, you're looking at data and then building your model based on the data. The other ones do that too, right? But this is being, I think, quite a bit more explicit about it. But those rules are about individual nodes learning and how connections are. It's not saying that all learning works like this. That would be a lousy model. Right? Because if I just say, the model is my data, that's not a model. You understand what I'm saying? Because I know it's a bit of a subtle distinction here. So does that make sense? All right. Groups of units, or we would call them modules, and we call them modules in evolutionary psychology and cognitive evolutionary approach, they're devoted to specific cognitive functions. <clears throat> This could be pattern recognition. This could be a spatial module. This could be a timing module. Okay? And in fact, again, our cognitive architecture probably works something like that. So once more, we've got something that theoretically, the idea <coughs> of modules makes quite a bit of sense. So let's build modules in. That we have these neurons here, or units, I should say, that work on angles. And these ones over here work on relationships between stimuli. We put those together and we get what we we'll call a spatial module. Because it's dealing with where things are. Okay. Properties of these things, they have, unlike 
Okay. Now this is a bit of computer stuff. Anybody here have a lot of computer science background? A little? Yeah, beyond that though, anybody know about how memory works in a computer? A little bit? Because when you ask a computer, which you do all the time, when you say do this, you're saying go get that thing that's in memory, right, and do something with it. But what you're actually telling it to do at the machine level is Go get that thing. It's right over there. You tell it where it is. Because the machine monitors, there's a, the operating system does that, it knows where it puts stuff. Right? That's called random access memory. That's RAM. Neural networks use CAM, content addressable memory. So instead of saying, go get it, it's right over there, they say, go find that. Because it's probably a lot more how this works up here, isn't it? So it's, go find that thing. And now it finds where that's stored. And first of all, that's a pretty big difference between go get that thing, it's right exactly there, to just go find it, it's over there somewhere. It's in memory, go find it. It doesn't just report back, the content addressable memory does not just report back where it was. It reports what's around it and what associations it has. There's a reason we don't have this in our computers. It would be horribly expensive. And we have to totally redo all the way we do all of our computers. So content addressable memory then, it's a hardware thing. You can write sort of simulations of it using RAM, but I mean, if you actually build a neural network, neural networking computer, you need that kind of memory. It's a whole different world. And for most of the applications that we have on our phones and our computers, tablets, we don't really need that kind of thing. We don't need to know that if I ask my computer, my, my phone, uh, you know, Directions to Dwayne Keogh's house. And it gives me directions. And then I go through and it says, do you mean Dwayne's house at Dwayne's home? But it doesn't say, oh, Dwayne, he lives near Paul. Because he does. And you guys work together. Lori lives nearby too. Did you know Dwayne went to Merle University of Newfoundland? Like, it doesn't bring in all these other associations. It just says, oh, yeah, there it is. It's pretty neat that my phone can do that. I can ask it how to get to Dwayne's house, and it tells me, except it uses Apple Maps, and it's, it's about 20 feet off. <laughs> this happened the other night. Dwayne says, come over to watch the hockey game. I get John in bed. Paul's already over there. I say, yeah, sure, I'll walk over. It was snowy, but it was nice out. So, and I hadn't been to Dwayne's house in ages, so I just set it to Siri, and I put my headphones on, and it would tell me where to turn and all that stuff, and I walk out, well, huh? and I thought, I said, that was your house. <laughs> I stopped and I heard, over here. I said, yeah, I thought that was your house, but my phone thinks you live over there. He said, well, you would have knocked on the wrong door. I said, well, I'm an idiot. I know what your house looks like. That's why I stopped. <laughs> so when we retrieve information, all I had to do is just like, 
My phone goes, well, where's, where's that? Oh, that's an address book. I know that's not exactly how it does it. But it knows where the information is. It goes and gets it in memory. In content addressable memory, it's like, Dwayne, Dwayne's here. Here's some things about Dwayne, some associations with Dwayne. That's a neat thing that our computers don't work that way. Neural network computers work that way. Right? The network makes guesses. If it doesn't know an answer, it can guess. My, computer, my phone can't guess very well. Right? The guesses it makes are when it doesn't understand, thinking about Siri or if you've got the Android equivalent, when you talk to your phone, it makes guesses because it's like, well, that kind of sounded like this. The closest thing is that I'm going to say, is it this you're talking about? The other day we were in the car, pushed the button because the phone syncs up with the car. It's all a computer. Everything's a computer. You know, and I just said, redial. It said, do you want me to call Cheryl Reed Elder? I said, no, 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 redial. <laughs> redial, not Reed Elder. <laughs> but the thing makes guesses. Now, if you've ever seen, who here has seen Watson on Jeopardy a few years ago? Anybody see that? The, the, the computer that played Jeopardy and kicked the crap out of everybody else? Now, it did screw up the final Jeopardy question. And this tells you, this was, it, was, it was beautifully telling. First of all, it won like crazy because it was just kicking ass. Right? It was pulling in all knowledge. It was basically, it had, uh, well, Wikipedia in it. But it would hear the things in natural language format that Alex was saying, Alex Trebek, right? And then it would just, oh yeah, I get that. Sometimes it was wrong. On the final Jeopardy question, it was airports was the topic. So the thing's got to make a bet in final Jeopardy, right? You've got to bet on how much, how likely you are to, to get it right. So it has to know how much it knows, which is pretty amazing. And it did. And then the question was, what city's two airports, what American city's two airports are named after events from World War II? And that, that's not great, not easy. Unless, you know, you know it like I did, as it would in Chicago. So it tries to make a guess. Because it doesn't, for some reason, it doesn't know that O'Hare, which is the main airport in Chicago, was a war hero. And the other airport in Chicago was Midway, Battle of Midway. It can't find anything because for some reason it doesn't know that O'Hare's airport is named after it. So what's it do? It goes through a list of, we don't, I don't know exactly this is what it did, but by looking at the mistake it made, because it said, what is Toronto? And you go, and everybody laughed because Toronto's not part of the States. Think about it. If you know Toronto, it's named after the airport in Toronto. Its secondary airport is named Billy Bishop Airport, which is named after well, World War One pilot. And Lester Pearson, well, he was in the government <coughs> of Canada that was there during World War II. Close enough. I'm going to guess that. It's wrong, but it's a guess. Watson is a, is a neural network computer. And it kicked the hell out of that guy, Ken, whatever his name is, that won Ken Jennings, that won all the money, the most ever on Jeopardy. 
Like it was, it was actually funny. He was laughing. They had like two of the best players ever, and Watson, and they're they're just looking at the sort of thing going, "Yeah, that's great, sure." There's no way. Like they'd get one, and the audience would applaud. Right? I, for one, welcome our robot overlords. But you see, that was a stupid guess, but an understandable guess, because you'd never get, you would never guess Toronto, would you? Because you all know Toronto's not part of the United States of America. But if you think about it, the way it was represented, the knowledge would be represented in a, in a neural network that they had, that was a good guess. It's wrong, but it's a good guess. It's an understandable guess. And it makes spontaneous generalizations. In other words, and that's it's the same sort of thing that's happening. It's like, well, it ain't the states, but let's say that's close enough, maybe that's what it means. Just like you do. Just like you do. The key part of the whole thing uh, is the way that the memory works, it seems to me. The other stuff, that's just modeling how neurons work. It's just modeling how neurons work. Uh, that's Cool, but it's not, I think, as important as actually using this content addressable memory, which is probably the most important thing. All right, some conclusions about this stuff. I don't want to get too bogged down in this, as I said. We can make a few statements. This stuff is hard, so I don't want you to get really bogged down in it, okay? Um, all these theories are about connections. They're all about associations or connections, right? It's probably not completely hierarchical. Because we know with TLC shows, this, it doesn't completely work, and it's completely hierarchical, therefore, and that's the big uh, characteristic of TLC, so it's probably the case that it's, it's not completely hierarchical. Um, activation probably spreads. I think that's a, what Collins and Loftus said is very sensible. Because that's going to be a property of a neural network. Right? The more recently something has been fired, the more uh, likely it's going to fire the next time. That's just uh, building up the threshold. Right? So again, that makes some sense. And it's hard. <laughs> One of the biggest things you can say is what you really need to do here, if you really want to study this, and if you're really into this stuff, this is fascinating stuff to do, you want to learn some computer science too, not just psychology. So when you go to graduate school, if you're interested in this stuff, um, and you work with somebody who does this kind of work, they're going to want to know if you can write code. There was a course at U of T when I was in grad school called Massively Parallel Models of Human Semantic Memory. Yeah, that was a course. Graduate school can get a lot more specific. <laughs> and uh, I never took that because it was like, well, I know how to play games and I can write in basic. I know a little Turbo Pascal. And these guys were, were doing really high-end stuff. We got him, Jeff Hinton, who was cross-appointed in psychology and computer science. It was pretty damn famous. <coughs> pretty damn famous. All right. So, don't, like I said, don't get too bogged down in it. Um, but nonetheless, it's pretty cool. Questions at all about that stuff before we move on to talk about something related? Okay. The quarter still seems to be working. That's a good stuff. What are we doing here? Or was it ever low on, on the battery power? Okay. Procedural memory. 
but doing that thing again. No, I think it's okay. But there's it not. Come on, let's do it properly. Here. Um, procedural memory. This is the same as memory for facts, but it has a lot of similarities to it. Semantic memory, memory for facts, procedural memory is how do you do stuff? How do you read? You just look at it, it happens. This isn't really available to cognition, to consciousness. How do you stop a puck? You ever ask a goalie a question like that? First of all, they'll look at you, I can't tell you, man, it'll, it'll, it'll jinx me. Because they're all freaks. All goaltenders are freaks. They are. They'll tell you that, by the way. Most goalies will say, yeah, we're a little bit different. Yeah. When you start playing hockey, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll be the one that gets fired at it. But if you ever played net, if you ever in your life, even among well, friends, I'm not talking about, you know, a couple of years you spent in the NHL. I'm talking about just playing street hockey. And when you make a save, and you make a good one, now we know we all make a good save, right? It happens everywhere. Love save or something like that. So how did you make that save? And the answer you always give is, I don't know. You can think of a simple one. How do you catch a ball? Uh, I don't know. You put your hands out and catch it. How do you think of basketball is another great example? How do you know from 25 feet away, when you go out and take a jump shot, when to release the ball and how to follow through? How do you know that? How do you remember how to do that? And you can ask any basketball player and they'll tell you the same thing. I, I really never thought about it now. And I don't want to think about it because now you're going to jinx me. These sports people very uh, superstitious. Right. Oh, they do it. How do you do math? How do you add? Like if I say to you, What's well, five times three? You go fifteen. Yeah, there was a time when you would go. Well, there's three groups of five, and I can count. You don't do that anymore. I hope. <laughs> hope. So some properties of this. This memory is implicit. It's not something we know we have it, but it's not like it's available to consciousness. Now all I gotta do is stick my glove up right now and catch the puck. I don't think Marty Brother does that. Because if he did, he'd never stop any pucks because he'd be lost in thought all the time. Hockey's a pretty fast game. It's one of the reasons it's hard to teach somebody to do something. I tried to teach my son to skate recently, which is it's really, really fun. And <laughs> I've got to a point now where he, he can stand up in the skates and he kind of moves his feet. But when I say, just move your feet, take some strides. And of course, what does he do? He tries to walk, like everybody does. Like, no, that's not, look at what that guy's doing. Now watch, watch what I do. Your feet make a T and push off and push off and push off. You know, and even then, that's hard to explain to somebody. It's implicit. It's not available to consciousness. The memory bit, you say, how is it memory? Well, it shows up because you get better with practice, and it stays with you. The example of skating, I hadn't skated uh, until we started trying to teach John to skate this year. I haven't quite skated in four or five years. I put my skates on, and after like two strides, it's like I just felt like I was on skates again. It was no big deal. First couple, you're like, oh, this has been a while since I've done this. Then you're fine. We don't know how we do do 
it, whatever it may be, but we do it, and we do get better. Right? I changed it from NHL 2005, it's obviously an old slide. I keep getting better at NHL 13 because I just bought that one. Just made the playoffs. Yes, I played 82 games, bought it two weeks ago. They're quick games, they only take 15 minutes. But I don't know how I'm getting better. But I am getting better. I've won, I've won 10 games in a row. Then the first game in the playoffs, I won 4-1. to one. And then I just lost 2-1 to one in overtime. And you know the goal to tie, to tie it up was offside. And there's nobody, I'm just yelling at the Xbox. But it was offside! Does it help? Achievement unlocked. You're taking this way too seriously. Uh, <laughs> But I, I mean, I am getting better. If you ever try to explain to somebody how to play a game, those of you that play video games, somebody comes over to your house and you say, you want to try to play multiplayer. We'll just do split screen. You know, we'll play some Call of Duty, some Halo, whatever. You give them a controller. He says, how do you shoot? And you go, I don't know. You got to actually look at your controller as you're doing it. Right? How do you jump? How do you crouch? Uh, uh, well, you killed me. I was looking at my controller. Right? You don't know how you do it. How do you... You know, it's like when you learn the maps in, you know, in online uh, uh, games, right? In, in shooter games. You suddenly know where everything is. You probably couldn't draw the map out for you, or for someone. But you know where the good places are, you know where to hide, all that stuff. Right? Go camping. My friend was over in Afghanistan. I said, is it anything like first-person shooters, he said, we've never yelled at the Taliban, no, no camping. <laughs> <laughs> they never complained when we used the noob tube. <laughs> and you don't have to tell three guys to call in an airstrike. <laughs> so the other thing is, when you get hit, it actually hurts a lot. It doesn't, it's not just like your goggles get covered in jam for a while, then it fades away. <laughs> like, it hurts. <laughs> it's a little bit different. But again, how do soldiers know how to do all those things? They're doing it under all that intense, it's kind of intense being shot at because they train so much, right? It's memory. They're told how to do certain things, but after a while they become so automatic they're not available to consciousness. So this is implicit. This is knowing without remembering. Yeah. When I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Um, so with the Army, yeah. um, these guys yelling in your face yes. um, to... Think a different way, right? Yeah. That's basically what part of what they're doing in training is getting you to think like a soldier, not like a civilian. Right. Okay. Because that's just redirecting everything. Well, first of all, trying to get people to kill other people is a hard thing to do. Right. So you have to. Part of what they do in the training is they, they train you that these guys are your buddies and their lives depend on you, and it's actually true. If the guy beside you, if you can't depend on him you're going to freeze up and you're both going to get killed, right? So part of it's that, but also they train, so they, they aren't taught how to do things like how to strip down into their rifles and all these things that they have to know how to do. They have to know how to do these things. But at some point, um, they become automatic, just like how driving a car. When you first learned to drive a car, you sat in the car, you put your seatbelt on, you were saying all these things you had, take the ignition key, put it in the ignition, turn it on, put the car in reverse. Uh, look in mirror, check blind spot, back up, back up, okay, back up. Now, you don't do that anymore. Now you can drive like, you know, with one hand on the steering wheel, not even looking at somebody. You know, my dad used to drive sometimes with his knees, with 140 and 401. 
And like he'd be fight fighting with my brother in the back seat. Hey, you guys are crazy! Smoking out of his mouth. You know, just like that. Like what dads do. So it's knowing stuff without remembering. When I say remember, see, when I say it's knowing without remembering, it's often said that way, but you are remembering it, you're just not aware you're remembering it. How's that? You know what I mean, right? Great example here is a French doctor um, named Clapared, I think you pronounced that. And he was a patient with. Uh, so that's a thing where you drink so much that um, it screws with your brain and you can't form new episodic memories. So he does this. This is in the late 1800s. He shows up, he pokes the night with a pin. what they do. The doctors do that in France, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all doctors. It's, 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 it's part of the thing. It's, uh, <laughs> But everybody gets it, it's socialist, so everyone gets picked with this. Um, the next day, so he's doing this for a reason, he's not just a, well, prick. Um, the next day, he shows up, and he goes, puts his hand up to shake hands, as they've done the day before. And the guy's like, I don't think I want to shake hands with you, I'm afraid you're going to hurt me or something. I'm sorry, Doc, I, I've never even met you before. He knew it. He knew that there was something about the doctor he didn't trust. He was going to get hurt. He had the memory of it. But he didn't know he had, he, that he knew. <coughs> that was the first case ever written down in the medical literature of what we call implicit memory. Pretty cool. This kind of memory is completely dissociable from explicit memory. Explicit memory is memory you know you have. How can we dissociate it? Well, amnesiacs show totally normal priming. They show totally normal implicit memory. And they show no explicit memory. So I asked them to fill out a list, to remember a list of words. They do not remember them, but I do remember the word frame, the completion task I talked about. They do that, and they do better on the ones they've seen before than the ones they haven't seen. If we look at over time, over time, what's also dissociable, so that's one variable that makes it dissociable, is that people that are amnesic show normal uh, implicit, but no explicit memory. Another thing here is if we look at this is time here, and this is uh, percent correct here. Explicit memory decays. Implicit memory does not. Doesn't decay. It's totally dissociable by the variable time. There are two different kinds of memory, perhaps two different memory systems. Okay. Questions so far? Is there any case of people losing implicit memory? But still I've never heard of that. No. Yeah, I've never heard of that. I think you'd be in a great deal of trouble if you lost yeah. that. Because I mean, I can't see how you can do anything. Because almost everything yeah, we do is, yeah, that, that's why it's a good question. Almost everything we do cognitively, we aren't aware we're doing. Right? How do I remember that I advanced the slides by clicking the button here? 
I don't know. That's what I do. It's my thing that I do. Right? So I don't see how that's impossible. Um, I've heard people think of that before, but I, yeah, I just don't know how you could do it, right? And I, I don't see how you get a case like that. I mean, you'd probably just have somebody that was... They wouldn't understand language then. Yeah. It's an interesting thought experiment. So Dave, yep. um, people with Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. um, that's like eating away at the brain. Yep. Um, so they, they have this, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but it can be the way it points, yeah. correct? Yeah. So, so what am I asking? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing that goes in Alzheimer's is um, explicit things, and it goes very typically slowly, it's always slow. Sometimes, of course, it's easy, very fast. But usually it isn't. Usually it's a little bit of forgetfulness. Um, and then some then implicit things start to go, like the ability to understand language, to speak, all these things, and eventually you die. I mean, you know, it goes from the, it, it goes from the outside in, basically. So you're going from more complicated things to more simple things, and then you just, when you don't have enough brain left, you die. It's, it's a horrible thing. Okay, so how do we study this? We study this using a technique called priming. And I've talked a little bit about this. Priming shows up when you get enhanced identification of a previously previously seen but now degraded stimulus. How's it degraded? Well, remember, part of the word is missing, right? So you have a word fragment, or you can have a stem, a word stem. So you have part of the word and then the first three letters, and then the rest is a blank. Now, you don't need to have that experience. You don't need to have seen the word coffee to identify the word coffee as, a part of the, as one of the word fragments, but it helps you. So I've heard people ask me, well, how is that memory? Well, because we get enhanced identification of a previously seen stimulus. Right? So it is memory. So the, again, the previous experience is it necessary to complete the task, but it helps, it primes it. So co completing the word fragment completing this as coffee, right? Completing that, you don't need to have just seen the word coffee. Because we can all fill in blanks. But you're more likely to fill that in than if you've seen than, than, than a word fragment that's for chickadee. Right? Because you haven't just seen that. That wasn't on the list of words you just saw. So the previous experience isn't necessary to complete the task, but it helps, it primes it. Okay? And the way we measure this is we compare the results on the proportion correct uh, of ones that you've seen to ones you haven't seen before. Because you're going to get some right that you haven't seen before. It's just filling in blanks. Some of them just come to you. You get them usually five seconds at a time, something like that. So you see it on the screen, 
and you write down your answer. You see on the screen, you write down the answer. Some you just have to pass, you don't know them, you just skip them. And some of them you see, you didn't see on a study list, but it's, just, it's easy to do, you just fill it in. And the beautiful thing about this is that it's a, a pretty robust phenomenon. It almost always happens. Right? One of the reasons we're going to use it as our next uh, task, next experiment in the psych lab course, is because it will work. Uh, it's much more fun doing experiments that work. So that's why we did the Stroop effect first, which worked, and we all felt silly trying to go orange. <laughs> it works. This is beautiful. Priming experiments always work. It's a robust phenomenon. So word fragment completion, stem completion, we would use either of those two, typically. The first stuff, really, I think, use stem completion, and word fragment completion came later. Uh, you also see perceptual identification. So what is this picture? Or sort of, yeah, what is this? But it's done very quickly. So it might be showing you for a 20th of a second. What was that? And if you've just seen it before, you'll be better at identifying, and that there you can use a picture, not a word. You could use words. It's been done with words. But probably word fragment completion is the most common. Then you'll see stem completion. Perceptual identification is actually being used with non-humans. Uh, you can do this with these priming and pigeons. When I say you, I mean I do. How do you do that? Uh, wait until I've explained all this, and then maybe okay. I'll explain. Yeah, it's really a complicated term. And it's not as good as my other work. <laughs> well, like this hasn't been cited as much as other stuff. Right? So I thought it was really breakthrough awesomeness, but only seven other people have cited it. It's like, it didn't have the impact I was hoping for. <clears throat> Picture fragment completion of digits. It also doesn't seem to be nearly as robust an effect, so. But I'd like to mention it, just if not for anything, just to feed my own ego. Okay. Right. So characteristics of priming characteristics. Characteristics. Retention interval has very little effect. See that? Over time, seven days. Seven days, you will get no decay of priming, which is pretty neat. Levels of processing has very little effect. Um, for the longest time, it was thought that levels of processing had no effect at all. Um, and levels of processing is uh, processing, let's say, semantically, in other words, the meaning. You remember things better than if you just look at the physical characteristics of the word. Perhaps the way it sounds, maybe counting the number of ascending and descending letters, like so a D, small d as an ascender, and a Small p, that's a descender, goes below the line. It's just counting, those are counting number of consonants, number of vowels. That's shallow processing. Looking at meaning is deep processing. And for the longest time, people thought it had no effect. It does have an effect under very specific circumstances, as found by Endel Tubbing's postdoctoral fellow, Brad Chalice, and bright young graduate student, David Bridebeck. And we actually reviewed uh, 30, 31 other experiments that claimed there was no effect. 
they all had no statistically significant effect, but they all went in the same direction, a very small, non-significant difference. And we said, well, then that means there's something going on. And then we designed our experiment to show that there was under specific circumstances. Well, that was a process. It only happens within subjects, not between. Like, it's really, really subtle. It's a small, teensy effect. Retention interval. Just the amount of time between study and test. Yep. Yeah, R is retention interval. Um, it's hyper-specific. That's a term Paulvin uses. Uh, that, what does he mean by that? Because it's a perceptual phenomenon, really. Basically. I mean, it's about almost the physical characteristics. If you change the font, the priming doesn't work. Okay? You change the, the color, it stops working. Or it doesn't work as well. It's really, really specific. So you can see it's quite a bit different then. Like uh, knowing what you had for breakfast. It's stochastically independent of explicit memory. What does that mean? It means that your performance on a word fragment, the probability of getting this word fragment correct, has no relationship to the probability of you remembering that word explicitly. Your likelihood of filling in coffee correctly doesn't change if you remember the word coffee explicitly or you don't remember it. They're completely independent of each other, which is a beautiful thing. So you see they're very independent kinds of memory, perhaps independent systems. I mean, I would say they are, but not everybody. That's kind of cool. It's not even kind of cool, it's really cool. Questions? That makes some sense? All right. So implicit learning. People can learn and we do learn other tasks implicitly. So it's not just words and word fragments and pictures and picture fragments. It's not just that. We learn a whole lot of things implicitly. Right? I think it's probably pretty safe to say most of the learning we do is implicit. So it's also tested with things like learning an artificial grammar. Now, these are really kind of neat experiments. What you do is you invent a grammar, meaning that this has to come before this, this kind, and it's not with words, it could be with symbols, things like that. So you're not using, it's going to be completely different from any language you've experienced. So you're shown a series of symbols. And instead of being told what the rules are, you're told, oh, square, circle, rectangle. No, that, that doesn't make any sense. Can't do that. Oh, square, circle, red, rectangle. That's fine. You can do that. You can't do circle, square, red, rectangle. What are you, an idiot? It's, it, you're not actually talking quite like that. That wouldn't be very ethical. Though it would be fun. Um, 
but people are taught, they're basically, it's like a grammar. You know how like English words, English is a, is a kind of a bad example because English is exceedingly forgiving in word order. But we always need a verb and a noun in a sentence, right? That kind of thing. This is why one of my favorite comments to write on a paper when it doesn't have a, something isn't a whole complete sentence, and I write not sentence. <laughs> I've had one person get the joke so far. And I gave them actually a one bonus point for laughing. They got back, so that's funny. It's not a sentence. Yes, you get the thing I'm saying. Right. So we know that, and that could be maybe all four-sided uh, shapes are like the verbs. You know, so it's something like that, and you're given examples, this works, this doesn't, this works, this doesn't. Like for example, the writing lab actually isn't a sentence, which is ironic somehow. Um, <laughs> Math lab used to have one that said math help, and it was a question mark. And I used to think that it should be an exclamation point. Math help! <laughs> you know, you put a comma in there. So you could, you could have a punctuation marks, things like that. But again, they're not the same ones you're used to. So you're learning artificial grammar. And you learn that implicitly. Telling people the rules doesn't help them. And we know this, frankly. Um, my wife can tell you about trying to teach people grammar. She teaches French grammar. That's hard. You think English grammar is hard? They got different tenses in French for like Thursdays. The tenses all change on Thursday. <laughs> Everything changes. Then it goes back on Friday. It's something like that. I swear. They got tenses they don't even say. That's actually true, by the way. Some crazy tense they only use writing. And some we don't even use writing. Yeah, and some they don't even use writing, but only when they're mining. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to go with mimes and French guys, but it, it worked. And I wasn't really thinking about that, so I didn't, you know. <laughs> I love that Alex Song has this sense of humor. That's good. There's something very nice and precise about French, right? Because it's, words have to be in a certain order. English is not like that. A certain order, order words have to be in. That's clunky, but it's grammatically fine, right? It's horrible sentence construction, but it's not wrong. Wrong, it's not. <laughs> do that in a lot of other languages, right? So, I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of people can speak English. Enough that people can understand them. So you do that with this kind of thing, these artificial grammars. Trying to teach people the rules is hard, and in fact, usually it's detrimental. Just giving them a bazillion examples. Now, again, these aren't grammars that are as complicated as the grammars we have in real human languages. So you do have to learn grammar you have to be taught it as well. There's a reason we're taught it in school. Right? You can't just pick it up implicitly. But you do pick up a lot of grammar implicitly. You internalize grammar. Right? You can look at a sentence and say, no, that just doesn't look right. Even if you can't tell me the grammatical error per se, you can still look at it and say, there's something wrong there. It just felt wrong. Because it's an implicit thing. Well, you really know a language. Right? It's an implicit thing. It's like, well, I mean, again, French is a nice example here because they have uh, masculine and feminine nouns. Right? And I don't speak French well enough to um, 
I don't speak French well. Let's <laughs> just say that. I can bit some Greek. But I can look at a word and say, no, that's not a la, that should be a the. And I don't know why. And there really aren't a whole ton of rules about that anyway. There's no uh, Pardon me? There's no. Yeah, there's no rule. Except um, for things like Kennedyan and Kennedyan. Yeah, I think. Well, that's because I'm non Antonio calls him, but. Yeah. But like, there's no rule for uh, tab. Yeah. There's no reason that it's. Feminine. Yeah. But why? Because. Yeah, exactly. Just because. Yeah. It's one of the things it's about coffee. It's so hard to explain to people. They say, yeah, but why is it like this? Because it is. There's nothing I can do. Wasn't my idea. I tell her to tell her. Just say it's like math. Same reason two and two is four. It just is. So the thing is, you can look at a word. If you know enough French, and it's a word you don't know before, you can look at it. I think that probably is one of those. There probably really is an implicit rule that no one knows. It's more like you guess because you see that the construction of the word is quite the same. And sometimes yeah. it actually, even us, do mistakes. Like, if yeah. we don't know what, and then we see it's constructed like this one, so it should be a feminine yeah. as well, but actually it's masculine. Actually, it's masculine, yeah. Then you throw the Germans, they got an extra one in there. They get that neuter one. It could be male, female, or Nisa. We are trying to trick you while you're not looking. So, I mean... But like, that sounds right. Look at that and you say, yeah, that feels like it should be masculine. It feels like it should be feminine. And they're kind of sort of are, but not really rules, is the best way to put that. And grammar a lot of times works that way. So you teach people, they are it's simple grammars, but instead of teaching them, you just give people examples and they learn them. And then you ask people what the rules are and they can't tell you. That's the beautiful thing. They just say, no, square, circle, green, triangle. No, yes, you can't do that. It just seems wrong. And in fact, you've made that so that explicitly is a rule, but you've never told them the rule. Really neat research. Really neat research. So that kind of makes sense as to why when you're talking to babies, you, uh, you want to speak correctly. Like the whole idea of care a lot that baby talk isn't exactly the best for when they're in such a... Right. <laughs> no, go ahead. I have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's hard. And in fact, babies almost, it's almost like they, they bring that on themselves. Like, you almost want to talk to them like in baby talk. Right? Yeah, but it's better. Oh, you look so nice today. <laughs> yeah. It's like you don't want to say things that are madly yeah. incorrect. Like, oh, she's a pretty one. Yeah. I can't even. No, no, like, for example, referring to yourself in third person. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah, you know. It can. Daddy's got to go over here right now. It's like, no, why don't I just say I've got to go over here right now? Some of a bad habit from so early on. I've always thought that too, but I don't know enough about no psychology except that I have two children. That's the only thing about no psychology I know. And they seem to be okay people. I do not have seen it in um, one child where that's the way they kind of spoke before and they'd always say hers and stuff like that, and now they're in kindergarten, so they're kind of having to recorrect that and again. Well, I mean, the, the so hardest part of it, I think, would be up. to stop talking like that. Yeah, exactly. When the kid's so. three or four, when they actually can talk to you. You know, they can't say anything. What the hell doesn't matter? And of course, they've learned it because that's what you've always yeah, spoken right. too. And it, it's hard because it just kind of comes out yeah. and it sounds cuter or something. I, I never talked to our kids that way. I just somehow didn't. It just I felt self-conscious about talking to our kids in baby talks. Because I, I thought I looked stupid. So I'm always having to like, slap myself in the face or something. I, I used to talk to my kids when they were babies as I would talk to you an adult. And people would look at me very strangely in the grocery store. 
I might have like some weird inflection going on. Yeah, I think I that. Speak, yeah. like correctly to her, except for that mommy's going to do this. I think we all do that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I remember walking along, um, and you know they had the, the carts, you know, the grocery store that had the, the built-in sort of baby seat. Yeah, yeah. And I remember Maddie sitting there, and I'm pushing along, and I, she's like two weeks old, and I'm talking to her about like world events. That's good. You know, she's like, can you believe what's happening right now in the Middle East? <laughs> So people, people are looking at me like, who's he talking to? Maybe. I've got to talk about something, and instead of saying, did you do a poo poo? <laughs> you know, which I once, my, my, one of my favorite Xbox Live stories is I had my thing on, and I'm talking, and my Jonathan was sitting there, and he was probably two and a half, and I've got my headset on, and I'm playing Ghost Recon, and it's really intense, and it's a really important team game, and you have to really coordinate what you're doing. No, Rainbow Six, so we're, we're clearing a room full of terrorists. In the game, it's not real. <laughs> and, yeah, my secret life is an operative. I take my kids with me. <laughs> Worst movie ever. But I'm wearing this thing, and I'm, I'm lying down in the game, of course, uh, in these bushes waiting for these bad guys to come by. And then I thought I'd turn my mic off, and I looked at John, and I said, did you do a poo-poo? <laughs> and I didn't have my mic off, and the three other guys started laughing, but they were all, it's a game that really attracts adults, and all these, they're all, like guys say, no, don't worry, dude, we've all done the same thing. We've all done this. On <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that it may be the case. I don't know what the effect of baby talk is, and I know people study that, but I don't really know. But you do internalize grammar. We know that. That happens. Everything I've researched so far says, you know, Okay. Okay. It's not horribly de detrimental either, unless you get as no other contact with the outside world. Yeah, exactly. Like they tend to get over this just if you want to give them more of a bit of a head start, get them into good habits first. Then. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine once got mad at me for swearing around their four-month-old baby. I said, your kid doesn't effing know what I'm even effing saying. So yeah. <laughs> I didn't go over that well. But it was, I was making a point. So I was doing it. Correlated events, in other words, learning. <coughs> Classical and operant conditioning. This is funny because, in fact, if I get you in a situation where you're doing, let's say, operant conditioning, I can actually get you in a, in a big grown-up size Skinner box. And you have to push a button or something every time, whatever the hell happens, I don't know. And there's a scheduled reinforcement, right? Let's say the first response after 15 seconds gets reinforced, the old FI-15. Great, next level 15. So we'll do that. We'll set you up. <coughs> you look just, your behavior looks just like a pigeon, by the way. Yeah, exactly the FI scallop. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Now I ask you, when you start showing me, uh, no, sorry, I will ask you, when, as soon as you figure out what's going on, I want you to tell me. Because I don't tell you. It's the same thing we do with pigeons, because we can't make tell you. Look at a pigeon, please. First one after 15, you pack, you get food. Okay, good. Doesn't help. So with pigeon, we just throw them in the box. Do the same thing with a human. Put in front of a computer and say, okay, well, you figured out what you're supposed to do, just tell me. People's behavior shows that they figured it out, but their cognition lags. They can't, they usually, it takes another few trials before they actually figured it out. So their behavior looks perfectly the same as a pigeon or a rat or a whatever, but they haven't actually, they, they can't tell you what the rule is yet. Pretty cool. And in fact, you know what? If you tell them what the rule is, it doesn't help them a whole hell of a lot either. 
So it's correlated events, just basically very simple associative learning. We don't do that explicitly. Abstract concepts are kind of like these artificial grammars. Right? Same kind of idea. Same kind of idea. So we make up fake concepts and we say, this is a yes. And this one's a no. And this one's a no. And people just guess. And the funny thing is they get good at it before they even know what the rules are. So it's kind of like the artificial grammar kind of idea, except it's one stimulus, not a series of stimuli. So it's something like, on even-numbered trials, it is uh, a shape with at least seven sides that has two primary colors in it. That's hard. That's a hard concept. And in fact, if I told it to you, it's not going to help you anyway. However, you know what? You can learn it. Pretty basic. And you don't learn that. You don't learn that uh, explicitly. It's completely implicit. And event sequences. You can see these things are all related. Basically, patterns. So I, I flash you a bunch of things and I say, what comes next? And you get better at those as time goes by, and you have no idea how. See, the nice thing about these kind of tasks is here, what they're showing is that we can, we, we have to, for, for this kind of implicit learning, we have to invent something no one's done. Because I can't take you into the lab and say, okay, I'm going to teach you how to throw a ball. Because we all know how to throw a ball. Right? That's an implicit task, but I can't have you do that. It, it's something we all know how to do. Right? Or I can't say, I'm going to teach you how to draw a, I don't know, star. You know, we all know how to draw stars. I could do mirror tracing. Remember we talked about mirror tracing with HM, that kind of thing? That's great, because none of us know how to do that. I can take you into the lab and put uh, prisms on your uh, glasses that are like prisms and shift the world over 45 degrees and have you throw a nerf ball at a target. Yeah, that's good. That'll work, because no, no, none of us have walked around with prisms that shift the world over 45 degrees. Right. That's... And you'll learn that. And in fact, even when I tell you it's shifting the world over 45 degrees, it doesn't help you at all. Because you miss by about over oh, 45 degrees when you throw the ball. Because you throw it over here. Oh, it's there, is it? Okay. Oh, it's going at it. <laughs> so these kind of things we can use to study how we learn things implicitly, and we don't have to worry about people's past experiences. So you always have to invent something that no one's done before. Some task that a person hasn't done. Because you don't want to have the dumb luck of having a bunch of guys that are really good at juggling. I don't know. One of the things that we often do implicitly is problem solve. Now, I'm not talking about math problems. I'm not talking about problems in a stats class. I'm talking, and I'm not talking about your personal problems. I'm not that kind of psychologist. I have enough of my own. It's the reason I never did clinical work. I was always afraid I would, I would I, people start talking and say, yeah, but you know what's happening with me? <coughs> it's not going to help anybody. Thanks for helping me. Give me $120. I just, I just don't see that being a business model. But I'm talking about like everyday kind of problems. Right? We have a start state and a goal state. We know where we are and we know where we got to get. This could be... Um, they can be very well defined or very, very fuzzy. Very well defined would be, 
I have to get my essay done by the day it's due. It's a well-defined problem. A fuzzy problem is, what do I make for dinner time? And not on the days where you flame. I'm making pizza time. I know what I'm making for dinner. I've already planned that out. The bread machine said to make dough. Do that or I'm making a whole lot of little buns or something. Because <laughs> it's going to make dough for me. But it's when you come home and you look at the fridge and you just stand there hoping that some guy will say, what about this recipe? Right? So that's a fuzzy problem. You look at the, hopefully not too fuzzy because your fridge, then you got to go for mold. But, see what I went, did there? I was, was just mixing it up. What do I wear to, what do I wear to work today? We're close. Right? That's a fuzzy problem. Because if you've got like, more than one thing to wear, it's not a fuzzy problem if you don't have to do any laundry. It's a simple problem. Let's see. Those are clean. That's how men do it. <laughs> Women are all, guys are all like hiding. Yeah, that's what we do. And if you're single, it's like, yeah, well, he's. Yeah, I love dirty these pants. I'll wear them again. <laughs> so you have heuristics and algorithms. Algorithms actually always come up with an answer. They always come up with a great answer. <clears throat> but they may take forever. Heuristics are guesses. They're rules of thumb. And we learn how to do these things implicitly. We learn how to do them implicitly. So, like for example, if the if the thing, the problem you're solving is, what's my password? You ever forget your password for something? Sure, right? You're saying no. I only use one password for everything. Stop doing that. There's a simple free service called LastPass. Use that. Okay? That's just a little pro tip from me. But you're trying to guess your password. Or more fun, you're trying to guess your friend's password. And I've done that. And it's actually, depending on how computer savvy your friend is, it can be quite easy. Now, what's an algorithm for finding your friend's password? Combine every possible character. And let's see, it'll take you. You know, if you were doing it, it's called a brute force attack, okay? So you actually try every possible combination of characters. To break 128-bit encryption, the kind of encryption that's on a, a banking website, if you were doing it through an algorithm of brute force, it'll take you um, a million, 12 million times longer. If you have all the computer power in the world, it'll take you 12 million times longer than the universe has been around to solve that task. It just, you know what? People can crack half. It rules of thumb. They find out things called, like, for example, in uh, Wi Fi, I don't know, I did, wasn't pointing at your computer because I've broken your computer. Um, if, if you use web encryption, anybody here use web encryption in their home network? Stop. Because I can crack it in 60 seconds. It's 128 bit encryption, and I can crack it in 60 seconds because there's a, there's a heuristic. There's, there's what's called a weak key. 
and all you gotta do is find a couple of weak keys and catch them, and then you just go, oh look, is it is this the wet key? You're magic. No, no, I'm not. WPA's good. Use WPA. Um, cracked a friend of mine's password once because I knew who his favorite hockey player was. And I knew he wasn't very computer savvy. This was years ago when we used to use a, we all logged into a Unix server to do everything. It was a long time ago. And he said to me, I'm having trouble with my computer. This wasn't here. This was a new one. So he said, I'm having trouble with getting the email. I said, what? I said, I said, oh, maybe it's something where you can figure it something. I'll take a look. Because I was sort of the unpaid computer support guy on the floor. Um, so he said, I'll need your password. He said, let me log in. I said, you know what? I think I know your password. I think I know your password. I looked around his office, and there's pictures on the wall of hockey players from his favorite team, the Boston Bruins. Great. And by looking at how old he was, and I saw a bunch of pictures of Bobby Orr, I just typed in four, four. There it goes in. Bobby Orr were in four. He said, how did you do that? I said, you're advertising your password. It's all over your office. And you don't use a password like, it's just a whole bunch of random numbers and letters. He goes, those are hard to remember. I said, yes, and then I can't break into your computer. And I guarantee you, if I logged onto that computer back, I bet he's using the same stuff. That's a heuristic. It would have taken me forever to break his damn password using an algorithm. And we do this all the time. We've learned these things a lot of times. We've learned them implicitly. Right? So when you ask somebody, how did you know that this went with this when you're making dinner? You say, well, they just do. Right? Sometimes, like, well, I watch uh, Rachel Ray do the opposite of what she does and end up with good food. Um, <laughs> Yummers. <laughs> How hard is it to say extra virgin olive oil? I'm going to say E-V-O-O. Oh, I can't stand her. Um, I, I have a lot of hate in me, but it's mostly for people that don't matter a lot in my life, so it works out pretty well. <laughs> so we've learned those things, heuristic, or these heuristics. We've learned them implicitly, and we do them implicitly. When you ask a musician how... A musician that can play by ear, how do they do it? They say, I don't know, I just play. My brother's like that. He can play any instrument, literally. And he just plays them. He just knows how to play instruments. He knows music like that. Right? Super memory! I really wanted to do that, so that felt good. Um, can you improve your memory? Yeah, yeah, you can. And in fact, a lot of times it's for these kind of things. These kind of implicit things. That's why we do what's called study. If you view memory as a skill like juggling, you can get better at it. The thing is, you have to know what the processes work, things like that. But there's this guy, Rahan, and I always forget his last name, he's from Indian. And he's a psych professor at, I think, is it Tennessee State? I can't remember. Somewhere in the States. And he knows pi to 38,000 digits. Yeah. So he's got a lot of free time. <laughs> hey, Pete Mick, you know what? Why is it any, any better or worse than playing Xbox? No good. The neat thing <coughs> is that when you ask him how he does it, like it's good. He just goes 3.141592926, and then you come back. 
come back 45 minutes later, he's going 6, 4, 1, 3, 8, 2, 1. And he's right. That's the thing. It's not like he's just making up numbers. He's right. Um, he's the same, as, the same thing as a chess expert. What they do is they chunk stuff. A chess expert, a top-tier chess player, they aren't, they aren't thinking any more moves in advance than a really good chess player. Why don't we all have this idea that you know you make you move your you play a really good guy, really good chess, you move your pawn once, and you think, oh well this guy's good, he's already figured out how he's going to beat you. No, he hasn't. Right? But when you compare grandmaster chess players to masters, grandmasters are like the top world champion types. And you compare their memory for where pieces are on a board, you can just show them a board for a couple of seconds, they remember where all the pieces are. You know, you know when they can't? When you put one of the pieces where it's not supposed to be. So you have both of your um, bishops on black squares. Which you can't do with chess. Well, you can do it. It's called cheating. <laughs> um, then they can't remember that. They look at the middle better than you are. This is the same thing. I think great athletes are like this. That they are able to... Remember, you always hear people talking about how basketball players can see the floor, hockey players can see the ice better. They don't see any better. Right? I don't think a lot of them see like I do, but they don't see any you know, better than anybody else. But what they can do is they can think of where people are supposed to be. There's that great Wayne Gretzky quote, and he said, well, I know where the puck's going to be, not where it is. And if you know that, because you've you know everything about the game. You're an expert. Same thing with the chess master. Same thing with Rahan or Rajan. Rajan, so we'll just, just be in the middle. Um, what he did is he's, he's chunked this. How do we know this? Because you can say, okay, what's the uh, 24,803rd digit of pi? And he goes, four. And you say, okay. What are the ones around it? And he's better at saying the ones around it when he said like 28,400 than he is at saying another random. So what he's doing is he's got it into chunks. Now, this guy is pretty impressive. He's also increased his digit span. His digit span is 15, which is pretty damn good. It was 15, I'm sorry. They figure when he started trying to memorize pi. Now it's like 150. So you can say 150 digits to him, and he can just repeat it to you. That's lots. Right? So he's great if you're ever trying to remember a phone number. Right? Because you say, Rajan, my phone number is this. And he's got, yeah, I got it. No problem. I got it forever. <laughs> you know what the weird thing is about? Other stuff, he's not like that. You give him a list of words, he's no better than any of us in the room. He's just average. But give him a list of numbers, he's like, oh yeah, numbers, I can do numbers. Words are not so good with words. <coughs> and we should probably stop there because we're out of time. And we'll finish this stuff off on Wednesday. Uh, Monday, sorry. Thanks.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.